Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 this morning is where we're at in our journey through Mark's gospel. And before we pray and jump into the passage, just one other item of prayer for you this week and for the next several weeks. Uh, the middle of this week, Faith Carpenter is going to be taking off on her mission trip on the 18th, right? So this coming Wednesday, and so be praying for her and her team as they travel to Southeast Asia, and uh, excited to hear when she comes back about what God do does through the trip and things that she's learned, and so be praying for Faith, be praying for mom and dad as well too uh, during that time, and siblings, I guess, you know, if, if you want to, they might say, but uh, pray for the Carpenter family as Faith heads out on her trip this week. If you found your way to Mark chapter 9, it's page 844 in the Pew Bibles, page 844. And the song we have just sung, Christ Exalted, is our song, fits well with our passage. And it's why I asked uh, that song to be sung this week, is we're going to be looking at the exaltation of Jesus, but yet in his exaltation, suffering, and how that fits together in the transfiguration. So let's pray and look at our passage this morning. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to come and to worship you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is exalted high. He's seated at your right hand. Lord, but before his exaltation and glorification, he suffered. He is the one who bore our sin. He suffered far more than we could think or even imagine. Yet, Lord, he did so willingly. As we come to your word this morning, Lord, help us now to think of that, just see a foretaste of the glory that awaits, but yet the suffering that must precede it. Lord, we pray for Faith this week as she heads off on her trip. Pray for her teammates. Pray for her family as they're back home. And Lord, we look for you to do mighty things through their ministry there, but then also the life of Faith, um, that she would continue to be sensitive to your leading and that she would learn and grow to be more like Christ through this experience. Thank you for her willingness to step out. Lord, we love you. Help us now as we come to your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Please follow along as I read in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This passage of the transfiguration 
uh, is amazing in some senses, and in some senses you are left scratching your head thinking, what in the world is going on? (laughs) But I think we need to remember this idea as we start to look at the transfiguration, the idea of a foretaste, of a sample, of a shadow of something that's to come. Last week I mentioned it as we looked at verse 1 in chapter 9, the idea of something that's coming but yet isn't quite fully here. I mentioned going to a store that gives out free samples. It was our pattern growing up. Uh, We would go to church on Sunday morning, then often we would head off to, uh, to Cedar Rapids or Iowa City, and if it was a most blessed day, we would go to Sam's Club. And on Sunday afternoons, pre-COVID, before all that stuff, there would be manna from heaven, i.e., as a 10-year-old, free samples, right? And how could you sneakily get one or two samples, and then when the worker was busy, slide by and maybe grab a couple more? This was before I knew Christ as my Savior. Judge all you want, you know? The idea of a sample a, uh, a foretaste, it's, it's to trying to sell you on something. It's to, to just give you a small glimpse of what the bigger might look like, right? It's a preview of a new movie that's coming out, a trailer, right? The movie might be almost two hours long, but the trailer is two minutes to try and get you hooked. Uh, maybe it's a commercial, <laughs> right? We watch commercials and you might think, oh, I'm never going to buy this. And then you watch long enough, you're sitting there and you're like, how can I live without this? especially like later at night, an infomercial. Yes, I need 23 sets of knives. I do. These samples, these commercials, these small snippets of of the greater that's to come, it whets our appetite. Here, as we look in Mark 9 at the transfiguration, we see a glimpse of Jesus's glory. We have this small taste, this foreshadowing of the glory that is to be revealed. But why? Why? And how does it fit together? Why do Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of the glorified Jesus Christ? I think there's two aspects to this transfiguration, why it's important, and what it reminds us of. So our big idea this morning is this, is that the superiority of Christ overall, his exaltation, the superiority of Christ over all those who have come before him, So that's Moses and Elijah and the other prophets. He's the greatest of all of these. That vindicates the faith of those who trust in him, those who will follow after, those who will see Christ and his suffering and will endure suffering themselves. The fact that Christ is exalted over all and the fact that Christ will suffer for all demonstrates how our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Jesus is the culmination of God's messengers and God's messages to us. He is the living word. Throughout the Old Testament, from Adam to Noah to Abraham and his sons to Moses to Joshua to David to the prophets to Elijah, all these men we're prophesying, we're pointing and directing the nation, directing the people to God, to God's plan, to his plan of redemption through the Messiah. And now we come to Jesus. 
In Hebrews chapters one, uh, in chapter one, verse two, the writer says this, starting in verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The recognition here is that God spoke to the people, to the nation of Israel, to the broader world through the prophets. He was proclaiming their sin and their need of redemption, of forgiveness, of coming back to God. Pointing to the day when one would come and make that a reality. He says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The culmination here of Jesus, he says in verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the culmination of everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. And he's here. And he has sacrificed himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And he is exalted over all. Now that obviously was written after the events here in Mark 9. But this is a foreshadowing of those events. The superiority of Christ, his exaltation over all. So let's look here at how Christ brings this vindication to those who believe in him and how he is exalted. First off, exalted overall in verses 2 through 8, and then in verses 9 through 13, we'll look at his suffering, how he suffered for all. So Christ is exalted overall. Mark jumps right in here in verse 2. He says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So the term six days is used I don't think there's really any necessary reason to read into that. Some people claim something, but in this passage and the other Gospels, I think it's just a time marker with what Jesus said preceding it. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and these are the inner three. So there's the 12 disciples, and these are the inner three. These are uh, his closest companions in the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he leads them up a mountain. We're not sure which mountain. We don't know the exact name of it. There are a lot of ideas, but nobody knows necessarily for sure. And they go up on this mountain. And it says the end of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, the understatement by Mark here is incredible. Like, Jesus took a couple of his closest disciples, went up on a mountain, and he was transfigured. No big deal, right? Then we read a little bit about what this transfiguration involved. He says, And his clothes became right, radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You know, selfishly, I read that and think, I think my mom would like to have a say in that, right? She's watched plenty of football uniforms, and you might have a trick at how to get clothes just bright white. But here, Mark writes that his clothing was so intensely white. It was radiant. In the other Gospels, they speak just of his face, but here Mark gives the, the whole picture that his whole being was transfigured. It went from a normal-looking human, and he was transfigured. That word transfigured is the same word that we get the word metamorphosis from. 
It's the idea of a change, of a uh, almost idea of a blossoming out. It's it's a revealing. Jesus was one moment a normal-looking first-century Jew, and then the next moment he shone with the glory of God. His clothing was so intensely white that it was the whitest that could ever be. It almost be like it hurt your eyes. It was so bright. And what is this whiteness, this brightness? It's, it's the glory of God being shown through his person. His glory revealed. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So not only is Jesus changed to show his glory, but two guys just randomly show up. And these aren't any two guys. These are some of the choicest servants of God and the biggest heroes in the life of the Jews. You have Moses, the giver of the law. And you have Elijah, who fought the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, who was an amazing warrior for God in the prophetic sense. And here they are, these two men standing with Jesus and talking with him. Now, this is interesting and maybe gives us a glimpse into uh, what heaven, the intermediate state, might be like. I'm thinking they're talking to Jesus and they've already had a conversation with Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. I can't prove that or demonstrate that, but you have to think as they are uh, with God, as they, neither of them are alive, Elijah was caught up and Moses died before entering the promised land, that they are having this conversation with Jesus. That they are having this conversation with the Messiah, with the second person of the Trinity. And they were talking with him. The two perhaps greatest men, apart from maybe David, in the history of the nation of Israel, are talking with Jesus. And they're here in the presence of the glorified Son of God. Now flashback to the disciples who are standing here. Put yourself in their shoes. You go with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we're hiking up another mountain? Really? And you get up there and all of a sudden, Jesus is bright white. You're like, whoa, what's happening? All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there. And it's clear that it's Moses and Elijah. And they know that it's Moses and Elijah. And I don't know where they were in name tags. Was it name tag Sunday? I don't know. Somehow it's revealed to them that they know who these two men are. For Peter says, rabbi or teacher. It's a very common term for a disciple with their master. Teacher, it is good that we are here. Jesus, this is awesome. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, I don't know what to do. So Jesus, let's make tents. One for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Let's camp out. Let's just stay here. Let's just talk. Let's have a meal. Let's just enjoy this. Have you ever been enjoying something so much that you didn't want it to end? As a kid, it was always vacation. I remember making a calendar and hanging it on the fridge with a countdown. My mom would only let me start, I think, 30 days in advance. You know, no like 100 days out or anything like that. And I would cross off each day. Oh yeah, here we go. Here we go. Vacation. Get in the car, head out in the road. We always drove and saw the country, went to a lot of strange, weird places. And we always had to learn because my mom was a teacher. But I always love vacation. But yet on those last days heading back home, it's like, 
as much as it's nice to get home and get to your own bed, it's like, as a kid, I didn't want it to end, right? As soon as it was there, it was over. Maybe it was your birthday. Those of you who are older in age, you're like, yeah, big deal, birthday, right? But it's, it's exciting. It's something you look forward to, but then it's gone. Just that quick. You don't want it to end. I think Peter and the other disciples were there on the mountain, and they're thinking, this is amazing. I don't want this to end. Here is Jesus in all of his glory and Elijah and Moses talking. Let's stay here a while and let's enjoy this. Mark gives the comment in verse six, for he did not know what to say for they were terrified. I, I think that's, that's so ironic. Mark says Peter didn't know what to say, but yet he still said something. If nothing describes Peter better than that, I don't know what, right? Peter didn't know what to say, but he still said something. He said, let's stay here. He says, for they were terrified. And that word terrified is not the sense of, I want to get away, I'm scared of the dark. That terrified is, this is something that's amazing. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm probably shaking. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's being in awe. They didn't know what was happening, but they see Jesus exalted, him glorified. And here are these two heroes of the faith in Elijah and Moses. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This cloud is obviously a supernatural cloud. And this voice that comes out of the cloud says this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So what is this cloud? This cloud is the presence, I would say, of God the Father. Anytime you see a cloud covering something, something important is going to happen. Think of clouds in the Bible. Think of, think of the appearance of clouds. Think of the Old Testament. You have the nation of Israel, right? They're being led in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud or pillar of fire. How did the nation know that God's presence was in the tabernacle? There was pillar of cloud. In the temple, right? Pillar of cloud. What about Moses when he went up the mountain? Right? There was a cloud that covered Mount Sinai and Moses went up. There's a lot of uh, connection here with the Mount Sinai and God coming to Moses and Jesus coming up on the mountain here to be transfigured. For when Moses went up the mountain and he asked to see God's glory and God said, I would kill you if I showed you in a sense my face. So what did he do? He hid Moses and he just passed by. And when Moses came down, what was Moses' face like? It shone, right? Shone so much that he had to wear a veil. The idea of God's glory had such an impact on Moses that he himself radiated and reflected that glory that he had to cover himself. Do you see the connection here? To where Jesus, in a sense, is veiled in his humanity. But here he is being unveiled before the disciples and they are seeing the full glory of God. And as the cloud covered Mount Sinai and God gave his command to Moses for the people of Israel to say, follow me in this way, here he comes and he speaks to Jesus and to the disciples and he says, this is my beloved son. This is, this is my beloved son. And what does he say? Listen to him. Just as he gives the commands to Moses for the people to follow and obey, 
He's now saying to his disciples, hey, this is Jesus. Listen to him. This isn't the first time that we hear a voice from a cloud or a voice from heaven. In Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, as Jesus is baptized, we hear uh, the voice from heaven, right? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That, that was almost, in a sense, to Jesus. And here we see the direction of the statement was to the disciples. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He is the culmination of everything. Wow. <laughs> what a trip <laughs> for these disciples, right? Of all the things that they've experienced, that they've witnessed, this is even more amazing. Yeah, they've witnessed miracles and casting out demons and healings. And, but here is Jesus revealed in all his glory and Moses and Elijah in the flesh and a voice from heaven from God the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. Peter, James, and John, listen to him. And as fast as this all happened, it was gone. Verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Just a glimpse, just a foretaste, just a, oh, there it went. But why? What is God's purpose in doing this? We get a glimpse here, a shadow, a foretaste of Jesus' true glory. He is the Son of God, the, who, the one whom we should heed. Jesus is the culmination of everyone who has come before him. He is the greater Moses. He is the greater prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is speaking to the people in his last recitation of the law and commands before God takes him up on a mountain and he dies. And in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says this, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. So he says, God will raise up a prophet like me. So this isn't just any other old prophet. This is one like Moses. Well, what does that mean? Well, being like Moses is you are an, an intercessory between the people and God. Moses saw the glory of God. Moses was in his presence. Moses was used by God to deliver his people out of bondage, to guide and to direct them. And so this prophet is going to be one like Moses who's going to bring about redemption and salvation. And he says, from your own brothers. And I love the end of verse 15 here in Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses writes this, it is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. Moses says, there's going to be a prophet that's like me, that's going to come from the nation. Listen to him. And God says on the mountain with Moses there to the disciples, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is the greater Moses. Read Hebrews, it talks about that. Listen to him. Jesus has preeminence over the other two men who appeared. He is the Lord's anointed. He has come to fulfill all that he has come, that has come before. In Jesus, the Old Testament, the New Testament, find their yes and amen in him. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Moses and Elijah prophesied about it. It has now come to pass in Christ. Christ is exalted over all. 
from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through this transfiguration here in the beginning of chapter 9. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. You have the building momentum in Mark's gospel to this point. And it's building to the revelation of who Jesus is. You have Peter's confession. You have the call to follow after Christ, to identify with Jesus. We have God the Father literally saying from a cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And now from here, we have Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, making his way to suffer for the people, living out his Messiahship. This is who Jesus is, and he is exalted over all. Think of Moses and Elijah. I think it's interesting that these two men appear. Elijah was a bold prophet of God, but yet he feared, right? He did an amazing miracle with calling down fire from heaven, but yet not after that, he ran. He ran from Jezebel. He was afraid, and God came to him. God ministered to him. He said, God, is there anybody in the land who still believes? And here's Elijah, 800 years later, seven, 600 years later, about there. And he's in the promised land, and there are people who believe. Think of Moses. Moses was used by God to bring the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the promised land. Did Moses ever enter the promised land? Not in the Old Testament. Did Moses ever enter the promised land in the New Testament? Right here. Think of that. God took Moses and Moses is a promised land. You led, but because of your sin, out of anger, <laughs> striking the rock twice, not going to let you in. Moses' first steps in the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Messiah. That's an amazing thing to think about. These two, these two stalwarts of the history of Israel, yet Christ is exalted over them. One commentator says this, As the vision on the mountain fades, Moses and Elijah disappear, and Jesus is left alone. The fate of the world rests on his shoulders. Everything that has come before was mere preparation for his coming and the salvation he would accomplish. The superiority of the new to the old is a central theme of the letter to the Hebrews. The writer begins with a thematic statement that everything God spoke through the prophets in the past was partial and preparatory. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is far greater than any who have come before. The creator and sustainer of all things, the heir of the universe who provided purification for sins. History has its culmination in him. Mark is demonstrating through this transfiguration how Jesus is exalted over all. And he is the one who we are should be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and identify with him because he is exalted over all. But before the exaltation, just the glimpse we get, there's suffering. Verses 9 through 13 talks about how Jesus suffered or will suffer for all. It says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. A very common phrase out of Jesus' mouth, right? Jesus is controlling the narrative. He doesn't want things to get out of hand. He doesn't want this mob to come and take him and set him up as this political king. Because the people want revolution. 
And Jesus needs to accomplish redemption. There's a difference. Jesus has come to suffer and to die, and the people don't understand that. Even the disciples don't. So he says, do not tell anyone what, you had see, what you've seen. And he says, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So here again, Jesus prophesies about himself being raised from the dead. He says, until I am risen from the dead. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. We hear Jesus say the Son of Man rising from the dead. We're like, oh yeah, the resurrection. We get that. But in the minds of these disciples, they had really no category to fit this in their thinking. They knew of a general resurrection at the end of, at the end of all days, right? When, when God comes to make everything as it should be. There's a general resurrection. So they're confused as to what they mean or what Jesus, is mean, Jesus means by a resurrection from the dead. Like, like everybody or just you? You're going to die? How is this all going to work? A lot of confusion. And they ask him in verse 11, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So here we see the name Elijah brought up again. They just saw Elijah on the mountain and there's a lot of connection uh, in the Jewish history with Elijah coming. Some found in the Bible and some extra uh, that the other uh, prophets and rabbis, or not prophets, but rabbis and teachers have added on. But they ask, why does Elijah must, why does he come first or, or why must he come? And what they're referencing to is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi prophesies and he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's this, this small prophecy in Malachi of Elijah coming, right? turning the hearts of the children to their fathers, and so on. And so they probably have this in mind. What does this mean that Elijah must come first? Is Elijah himself going to come back? Is that just a term to reference someone else? In verse 12, Jesus answers them, and he answers them in a very Jesus way, meaning he gets his point across, but it's kind of confusing. <laughs> um, he says this, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased that is written of him. So as we look at these three statements, Elijah does come first. What about the suffering of man? But I tell you, Elijah has come. I think the answer is bracketed in between the first two statements about Elijah. The point is there in the middle. Jesus is saying, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He says, you ask about Elijah, but what about the Son of Man? What about the Messiah? How does that fit in here with the restoration of all things? Because they were confused about that, that Jesus, the Messiah, would suffer. He's doing a couple things here. He's first pointing out, hey, disciples, you're missing, I think, the bigger picture of how things are all going to work out. You don't necessarily understand that. But also, suffering is not divorced from this final consummation and exaltation. He says, and how is it written that the Son of Man, he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's saying the Messiah will suffer and he will die. But restoration comes 
through that suffering. And Elijah has come, and they did to him what they pleased that is written of him. So Elijah has come. The Old Testament Elijah, New Testament, who is it? Well, in the other Gospels, we learn that it's John the Baptist, that he is, in a sense, Elijah. He is following that type. He is preparing the way of the Lord. He is preparing the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. And he suffered many things. If you remember, he lost his head, <laughs> literally. He was killed by Herod on behalf of his sister-in-law and wife, who are the same person. Remember that wonderful episode? He suffered. He came. He began that process of restoration, but restoration occurs through suffering. The disciples still have in their mind that this restoring of all things is just going to happen through might and power. And Jesus says, no, the Son of Man is going to suffer. Elijah is going to suffer. Restoration comes through suffering. Before there's exaltation and glorification, there's suffering and persecution, death, burial, and resurrection. The glory that is seen in verses 2 through 8 is contrasted with the suffering that Jesus speaks of in verses 9 through 13. The glory is coming. It's there. It's been, it's been prophesied. Jesus is the culmination of it. But before we get to that glory, we must suffer, Jesus says. And John has come. John is, in a sense, Elijah. And he has suffered and he has perished. And so will the Son of Man. But don't worry. You've already had that foretaste of the suffering. Or excuse me, of the glory that is to be revealed. One author says this, the promise of the transfiguration is that this suffering and sacrifice are not in vain. The vision of the glorified Christ is confirmation that after his humiliation, suffering, and death will come his vindication and glorification. This is a message not just about Jesus, but about all who follow him in authentic discipleship. Whatever the difficulties we face in this life, God is the sovereign Lord of history who will restore and reward all who remain faithful to him. Let me read those last few sentences again. This message is not just about Jesus, but about all who follow him in authentic discipleship. Whatever the difficulties we face in this life, God is the sovereign Lord of history. And he will restore and reward all who remain faithful to him. That's the vindication that we have. That's the hope in the midst of the dark night. That's the anchor for our soul. That's the hope when all hope seems lost. Is that Jesus has come, he has suffered, and he has died, but he's been resurrected and glorified, and so too shall we. So that no matter what happens to us in this life, we remain faithful to Christ. We cling to him. The future vindication of our faith will be worth it. Talked to uh, Violet Grazier this morning, and she said she's reading a book on heaven. How wonderful that is. That's true. That's the hope that we have, that eternity with God. It's worth it. It's worth it. Have hope. Be encouraged. The call here is to follow in faithful obedience no matter the cost because your faith 
will be vindicated because Christ has suffered for all and Christ is exalted over all. And in him, everything finds their culmination. Let's close with Romans 8. If you want to flip there, I encourage you to do that. Romans 8. Romans 8 is maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. Maybe. There's a top, I probably five list or top 10 list, but it's, it's got to be in the top, top three at least. But Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. Paul is writing here in Romans, and he's been building this argument about sin and judgment and how we need a savior and justification and dying to self and living for Christ and fighting sin. And then he comes to Romans 8 and it says, in a sense, the question is, is all of this worth it? Right? You ever read a passage of scripture and this, this fighting of sin and all these things that God, and you're just exhausted. You say, God, is it even worth it? And you come to Romans 8 and he says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time on earth are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even creation is groaning for Jesus to come back. And even creation itself will be set free. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a sense of vindication of our faith. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Paul's saying we don't hope for something that we can see. It's not saying, I hope the sun comes up and the sun's already up. No, we hope for something that isn't here yet. He says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, our longings. Have you ever said to yourself, maybe in the middle of the night, if you're driving in your car, just a moment of quiet, Lord, come back. Take me. Lord, I'm tired of this. I have. There are several points in my life where I can think of difficulties, of frustrations, of, of whatever it is, of God, just, just come and make everything right. That's that groaning. Verse 27, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he is also glorified. If you are justified, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
you have the hope of a future glorification. Just as Jesus was revealed in all of his glory, so too shall you enjoy that wonderful glorification. That's the hope. That's the vindication of our faith that all of creation is groaning and we are groaning and we don't even know what to groan for. But yet the Spirit intercedes and Paul says, by the Spirit of God, it will be worth it. For those whom God has saved, he will also deliver unto the end. No matter what this world offers, no matter what stands in our way, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, your faith is true. It is settled. It is vindicated because Christ has suffered once for all. And in his suffering, he has been exalted and he's exalted over all. This is my beloved son. God the Father says, listen to him. May we listen today. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. It's, it's all about him. Lord, it's not about us. But yet even it being about Christ, we receive blessing of, of, a, of a future, of a promised home with you forever. Glorified, rejoicing in your presence. Lord, as, as Peter said, let us build tents and let us dwell here. Or we will be in your presence. There'll be no need for the sun for this, your sun will be light. Lord, what a joy, what a hope that is. May we cling to that in the midst of a world that is becoming darker. May we realize that it's worth it. And may we submit ourselves to Christ and follow after him. May we listen to him. Lord, we love you. Pray for all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Um,